So tonight is actually our last study in Genesis before the new year. Uh, But we open up to Genesis chapter 15. Time goes so quickly, I can't believe we're already in the 15th chapter. Um, But here tonight as we continue our study through Genesis, uh, we have seen so far many times throughout, and, and I remind myself of this every study And I remind you guys every study, so much that we are seeing is about the promise of God. Uh, And and really pointing us to all of God's promises. And there's so many great promises and hopeful promises and joyful promises throughout Scripture, throughout history, and even in our lives, right? We look forward to promises. We like promises. But... We're going to get into a little bit tonight, and we have seen in the Bible, and we will see throughout the Bible and throughout history, that sometimes promises are not all just warm and fuzzy. And in fact, there's also promise of suffering. Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble, tribulation, trial, suffering. And we studied that in the Gospel of John, right? But he says, then take heart for I have overcome the world. And then, of course, John writes later on that it's actually our faith that overcomes the world. And and now looking into, there is now in Genesis chapter 15, we're going to begin to see a promise of difficulty, a promise of suffering. And now we might think, why does God promise suffering? Well, God has a perfect plan. And, and there's times in history that God has had to make certain things happen to bring about his perfect will. And it's still a promise, but you still have to walk through what God has because the promise that God has is greater than what we envision. So chapter 15, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, says, In this, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. After these things, right? So after what? Well, we studied last week after the the various different people that had been with Abram. uh, Lot was with him. He invested into Lot, right? He's his nephew, and he put a lot of effort into his nephew, and his nephew just still did what he wanted for the most part. Uh, But Lot went on his Merry way, he left Abram, and uh, leaving Abram honestly frustrated, likely frustrated. Uh, Then the king of Sodom was there with him. The king of Sodom left, leaving Abram feeling perhaps empty, as the king of Sodom represented all this wealth and riches. Uh, Then, of course, there was Melchizedek that was with him. He left, leaving Abram feeling alone. Then there is Anor. Eshkel and Mamre, uh, who all left as well, leaving Abram feeling powerless as they had this great military presence and all this power. And so now here's Abram left alone. Left, everybody left Abram. It's just him. Uh, Just him and the promise that God had given him. And you remember, we keep talking about that. We keep talking about the fact that God had promised him many nations, great descendants, many descendants and many nations, many, uh, much land. And there was this promise that had not yet materialized and he was trying to hold on to it. But in this time, thinking, man, there's people around him, there's wealth around him, uh, there's, there's, uh, things are flourishing, and now all those things have left. All those people had, who had represented all of these things had left. Even Melchizedek, who represented this spiritual presence and even a foreshadowing of Christ, right? Melchizedek left. And so now even in his own, his own spiritual mindset, he's thinking, I'm just alone. I've got nobody. You can imagine this. I mean, it, it doesn't say that here, but after these things, after all that had happened, everybody had left. It's just Abram and his promise that God had given him. And so in that place of feeling alone, frustrated, empty, and powerless, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Yes. (laughs) The word of the Lord comes in Abram's great time of need. 
And that's our same experience. Guys, if you are feeling alone, hurting, suffering, frustrated, empty, feeling powerless, seek the word of the Lord. The the Lord will speak to you and, and minister to your need at the right time. I mean, his word is always there and he'll always speak to us through his word. But when the word of the Lord comes and we have that thus saith the Lord moment, it's so much at a time of great need and that's where Abram was at. And the word is this, do not be afraid, Abram. So what do we know based on that statement? Not only was Abram frustrated, feeling powerless, alone, all this emotion going on, Abram was afraid because God told him not to be afraid. So we can assume that he was definitely afraid. Do not be afraid. God addresses all of Abram's insufficiency in this word that he has for him. And oftentimes, guys, a lot of our insufficiency comes back to fear. It comes back right, feeling alone, feeling powerless, feeling empty, frustrated, all these things that he, he might be feeling in the midst of this abandonment, so to speak. It's fear. It's fear, perhaps, that his circumstance is not going to get better. It's fear, perhaps, that he'll always be alone. It's fear, perhaps, that the promise of God will not be fulfilled in his life. Many times our problems come back to our fear. And our, that fear comes back to a desire to please man rather than God. But Abram was afraid and God addresses his insufficiency because the word of the Lord is enough to do exactly that, to address our insufficiencies, our loneliness, our frustration, our powerlessness. The word of the Lord is enough. And so now as the Lord speaks to him and says, do not be afraid. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Here's a promise. God's already given him this great, big, massive promise. And then along the way, there's all these other promises. This is what God does for every one of us. Every one of you, God gives you the, the promise. If you have a relationship with him, you have the promise of eternal life. That's the big, massive promise everlasting life that's pretty good right but along the way he's got a word for you and wrapped up in that word and that word he's got many words for you in in the word of the lord it comes to you and he's got promises after promises after promises and what he says to abram in that promise is i am your shield do not be afraid i'm your shield do not be afraid, I'm your exceedingly great reward. These two things were issues for Abram. He, he, was, he was facing this loneliness. He was facing this frustration. He was facing this powerlessness, but God says, I'm your shield. You don't need that power, Abram. I'm your shield. I'm your strong tower. And so there's a promise in that. I'm your shield, I'm your protector, I am your strength, and I am your exceedingly great reward. Now remember, these people that had come and they were, they were with Abram who had now left Abram were a representation of wealth and of strength and of power and even of spirituality and even of comfort and friendship and family. But now here, I am your exceedingly great reward don't worry about feeling powerless empty alone or frustrated because God is saying to Abram right here and this is a promise I am enough I am everything you need you don't need anybody else now of course God has given us relationship He's given us people in our lives that we could minister to one another and show love toward one another and we have that strength in the body of Christ. That's the greatest value, right? We have the body of Christ. But what all we need is Jesus. 
All we need is that intimacy with him. When we turn to everything else and we're feeling as though we may be alone, you struggle with depression, remember this, you have Jesus. Turn to him, look to him. So don't worry, he's saying in a sense, don't worry about the money of the king of Sodom. Don't worry about the power of these men. Don't worry about, uh, you you know, even the, the spiritual influence of Melchizedek because I am the fulfillment. God, the I am is enough. In this even pointing us to Christ. As we see Paul writing that Christ is enough. His grace is sufficient. When all else upsets us, when all else crumbles around us, Christ is enough and his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Abram is just learning that and living that out here as we start Genesis chapter 15. We continue on to verse two then, but Abram said, there's always gonna be a but, right? There's always, well, hold on. Yes, Lord, I hear you, but let me just say one thing. I have this with my kids all the time. It's like they're being corrected or instructed as Abram is being instructed here, given a promise. It's like, yeah, I hear you, but I don't really hear you, right? (laughs) Whenever we say, but, it's kind of like, yeah, no, thanks, but no thanks. And it's not, I mean, Abram has great faith, but he's got to, he wants to say something. And this is what, this is as children, right? This is what we do before the Lord sometimes. Like, well, let me just say one thing. And so Abram says, but Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He recognized the promise was great and God had promised he was gonna have many great great wealth and great land and great descendants and and he's like that's all well and good but it doesn't matter what i have i have no one to pass it on to so all i've got is eliezer of damascus he's a good guy but he's an outsider right i mean eliezer of damascus in reality was like a spiritual son to abram he was one of his one of his servants in a sense that just was with him Along the way, all along the way, and that would be his heir to everything that he possessed. That's who, everything that, he, that Abram possessed would be passed on to Eliezer. And so, you know, Abram's like, well, what does it matter? You have this great promise for me, God, but what good is it going to be if I don't have an heir to receive it? And he says this, I go childless. Interesting here, Abram takes the responsibility. God can work with that, taking the responsibility. He doesn't blame his wife, who is actually barren. He could have. He could have taken a page out of the book of Adam and blamed his wife and said, I go childless because of the woman you gave me, right? That would have been, a, hey, let me chalk it up to the way Adam did things. I'm going to do it the same way. No, he, instead he says, I go childless, and God works when we take responsibility. And he's having an honest and vulnerable conversation with the Lord. I go childless. Verse 3, we continue. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir pleading with God. The fact of the matter is he has no offspring. He takes the responsibility. I go childless, but you have given me no offspring. And and what he's saying even in that is it's up to you, God, because his wife is barren. His wife cannot have children. And so he's saying, God, it's up to you to give us offspring because if this is gonna continue, if our lineage is gonna continue and I'm gonna pass on all this stuff that you're blessing me with, the promise that you give me, who am I gonna pass it on to? You've gotta provide. It's a real honest, vulnerable struggle with God. But it's with God. He makes his struggle known to God. He doesn't, you know, of course the reality is as he makes, Abram makes this struggle known to God, God knows. But Abram's not complaining 
He's making his struggle known to God. He's talking to God directly. And let that be a lesson to us. Sometimes we have issues with God. And in our issue, first of all, we shouldn't have issues with God. But sometimes we doubt, we struggle, we get frustrated, we feel lonely, right? What do we do with them? Do we go complaining to everybody around us about our circumstance, about the situation that we're in most likely because we put ourselves there? Or do we blame, do, and do we blame God to those people? Like, look at what God has done to me. Just go to the Lord. And he's making known to God, hey, you've got to do it. If I'm going to have an heir, you've got to do it. He's not necessarily doubting God's promise, but he certainly is longing for the promise. He's desiring this promise to be fulfilled, asking God in a sense of when and how will the promise be fulfilled and needing to be reminded. You see, Abraham, this great man of faith, he's not even Abraham yet, he's still Abram. His name has not yet been changed, but Abram, this great man of faith, was learning so much. And even in our walk with Jesus, sometimes we have doubt. And in that time of doubt, in that moment, we can go right to God and ask to be reminded. That's in, in a sense what Abram is doing. He needs to be reminded of the promise. So verse four then, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Oh, good news. Eliezer is not his heir. That's what God is telling him. God is making things very clear for him because Abram was a little confused. Hey, I don't have a child. You've got to do this. You've got to give me a child. All I've got is Eliezer. But God reminded him of the promise. God did exactly what Abraham needed to be done. When God promises something, listen, we assume that that, that fulfillment is just moments away, right? I mean, we do. When God, we, we hear a word from the Lord, we're like, that's happening tomorrow. If it doesn't happen tomorrow, then God has failed me. That's the way we think, right? I mean, my kids think this way when I promise something. You promised we were gonna do this. I have, I have no time to do this in the next four minutes. Can we just wait a an hour, two hours maybe, right? I mean, that's the perspective. And of course, with the Lord, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. So time is irrelevant. <laughs> you know what, though? We need to be patient. We need to be patient for the promise. And that's what the Lord calls on Abraham to do. And that's what he'll often call on us to do, is to walk in patience. So God does what Abram needs. He reminds him of the promise. This is not the heir. Eliezer is not the heir. You're gonna have your own. You're gonna have a, a child, a descendant of your own body. It's going to be yours, Abram. But don't assume that it's just moments away. Oftentimes it means we have to wait. And it takes a lot of faith to wait it's really hard to wait, but it's so much better. Oftentimes in my life, I've seen God work in this way. 20 years ago, yesterday, I told my wife I was interested. <laughs> we were in high school. So, I'll be honest with you, I knew at that point I'm good, I'm, I wanna spend the rest of my life with this girl, 15 years old. But you know what I had to do? I had to wait. 20 years, I didn't have to wait 20 years, thank the Lord. Five years, waited five years and we got married. You know, and, and some of you guys know this story even back in 2009, my wife and I felt that the Lord was prompting us to, 
to move out of the country. We moved into the, onto the mission field. We were in the Bahamas. We were in Brazil serving with Patmos Reality Discipleship. And it was when we moved, it was within weeks after we moved out of the country, we packed up our house, everything. We shipped a bunch of stuff down to the Bahamas and moved our whole life. And within weeks of arriving in the Bahamas, we got a word from the Lord. And that word was, I was gonna come back to New Jersey and pastor Cornerstone. That was in 2009. I'm like, wait, I just moved out of the country, Lord. What do you mean? And then, and then that word from the Lord was confirmed repeatedly. And, and I, you know, I, in my thoughts, in my mind, I'm like, okay, Lord, let's go. I was 23 years old, about to have our first kid, you know, and then very soon after, about to have our second kid living in Brazil, and well, what's going on here? What, well, the Lord said, I'm going to pastor Cornerstone, so let's just go back, and that's going to happen, right? What did we have? We'd waited 10 years. Waiting is hard. When, you, when, the, when the Lord has given you a word, a promise, it's hard to wait, but you just wait. He'll fulfill it. He will show you how beautiful it is in his time. We don't have to try to take matters into our own hands. But God then, he reassures Abram here, verse four, as we, as we read, he reassures him of the promise and how it will be fulfilled. It will be of his own body, his own descendant, a, a biological child of his, uh, and he brings clarity to Abram as well. In verse five, then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. This is the big promise, right? And this is the big reminder. This is a an illustration for Abram. This is the opportunity, an object lesson, and he literally, he brought him outside to show him his glory, to show him the majesty of, of his, the work of his hand. And as he brings him out, he shows him how great he is and how big the promise is. And that's the thing, when we understand God, we won't try to be caught up in our momentary fulfillment of the promise. Because that's what we do, right? We think, okay, here's a promise, it's gonna be fulfilled right now, within minutes or within a day. Other than that, I can't handle waiting any longer, right? But if we do it that way, we forget how big God is. And if we wanna see and experience the fullness of his promise, we need to get outside and see the fullness of God. Inside the tent where Abram was, he couldn't see it. God brought him out. And, and much like when God told Abram to look up from where he was standing, when God said to choose the land, he, he gave the choice to Lot first. Remember we studied in chapter 13, and Lot chose what he could see. He just saw in front of him, like, that looks good. I'll take it. And then God, and that was Lot looking up, and then God said to Abram, now you look up, and you look all around and see the fullness of my promise. In the same manner, God brings him outside, gets him outside himself, outside of his vision, and he says, look up. Not just lift your head and look up and look around, now look to the heavens to see the fullness of God. The fullness of what God has to offer in his promises. God's promise is beyond our current circumstance. God's promise is beyond our finite vision. We have tunnel vision. God sees the big picture. Look up. When we need to be reminded of the promises of God, look up. Look at what he's done. Look at what he has spoken into existence. Be reminded of his power and his might and his faithfulness when you look to the stars, when you look to the heavens. 
it's truly mind-blowing. We can look around. I mean, this time of year, it's a little more clear, a little easier to see, right? I know New Jersey's not usually great with the stars in the sky, but go somewhere where you can see the stars in the sky. Look up. See how great God is and understand that his promises are so far beyond our finite minds and our finite vision and certainly beyond our current circumstance. And it's interesting to remember this, guys, that Abram was a descendant of Babel. And as we studied on it, it with the, the Tower of Babel, this was a, a nation of people who were literally worshiping the stars and studying astrology. Remember it said they built a tower with the heavens atop, right? And their focus was all on the, the stars and astrology and all this study of it and literally worshiping it itself. And God brings this into, into the fullness of understanding for Abram. Where Abram came from, he was a descendant of that. And God said, look up to those stars. Look up to those stars that you once understood a certain way and know that this is my fullness. This is what I have to promise you. He points Abram through the stars to himself and to his promises. Verse six, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. There's, there's a great back and forth between God and Abram here. And, and this response of Abram here, he believed God brought him outside to get him outside of himself to see the big picture. He, he says to look up to the heavens. And what does he do? He doesn't look to the heavens and lean on his own understanding. He looks to the heavens and he believes in the Lord. He believes in the fullness of God. He has a, an understanding of who God is. He has great faith in this moment. He, he now is putting his trust fully in God as he looks up. In this worship of the stars that he once understood, it fell short. Now God brings him to that place. Look to the heavens. See the stars? This is the fullness of my promise. It takes faith. It's not just believing the word of the Lord, but believing in who God is. Believing in his character, his nature, his work. And it says it was, accounted, it was accounted to him as righteousness. Because Abram could not achieve righteousness. He couldn't earn it, right? You think of the accounting part of this and earning something, right? We have bank accounts, we work a job, we get money, deposit it into our bank account. But we can never work and deposit righteousness. Our righteousness account on our own is a big fat zero. That's Abram. He could not account righteousness. He could not add to his account of righteousness. He couldn't do anything to gain righteousness except allow God to deposit righteousness into his account. And so he does, he believes, he has faith. And that was accounted to him or credited to him as righteousness. Guys, the greatest credit to our righteousness is our faith. We need to build that credit. In a world that's talk, telling you all about building credit, we need to build righteousness credit. And how do we do that? Walk by faith. Look to the heavens and believe in what God can do and who he is. Our faith just keeps adding to our righteousness account. Walk with Jesus. That's how we see the account balance go up.
But guys, this is clearly giving us a great picture here. And this picture is salvation by grace through faith. Ephesians 2 tells us that. By grace you are saved through faith. Not of works. That's Abram. He can't do anything to gain righteousness. So God gives him righteousness based on his faith, not his merit. In fact, this whole chapter will point us to grace. And this is the first time in the Bible that both believed and righteousness are used in this, this circumstance, this type of circumstance. The connection between faith and righteousness is first introduced right here. Belief and righteousness. It's the gospel in the Old Testament. And this passage, this is quoted several times in the New Testament. Paul quotes it himself several times in the New Testament. Without question, it's the gospel we get to see and understand. We're getting a picture more and more all the time of a, of a, a picture of Christ and the work that he's done. You know what it doesn't say here? It doesn't say that Abram obeyed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, no doubt, we've talked about before, obedience is important. We demonstrate our love for God through obedience. We demonstrate our, our faith in God through obedience. These are, this is a way that we demonstrate faith. But it doesn't, that's not the end of it. That's not what it comes down to. If you just follow all the rules, that's how you get righteousness. This is where the world got it twisted. This is where the religiosity set in. This is where it became about merit. It became about religion and what I need to do to attain righteousness. But that's not the gospel. We can't do enough. We cannot attain. We cannot gain or earn righteousness. We can only have it deposited into our account based on our faith. So he believed. And much more than just the simplicity of, you come across many people who would say, I, I believe in God. This is a, a living faith. This is an active faith. This is a relationship that he entered into with God. And in laying aside his old understanding, his own understanding, and trusting in God himself. Verse seven, then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. The Lord continues to speak to Abram's doubt. I am the Lord, first of all, making this great claim and speaking to his doubt and reminding Abram who he is and what he has done and connecting even to that point that Abram, you remember the whole, what we talked about, the stars, the Ur of the, Ur of the Chaldeans, this was a people who worshiped the stars and now God is saying, you see the stars, this is about me and I brought you out of that, Abram. I am the Lord who brought you out of that. He rescued Abram from a wicked lineage, he res just as he's rescued us from sin and death. It's a reminder once again of God's faithfulness, God's grace, God's power. Verse eight, and he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? This is again a back and forth, a response, Abram's response to God is simply, Give me a sign. Show me. How will I know the promise? How will I know, understand? How can I be confident in the promise? I'm just waiting. Much like a kid who's like, you promised. But what does God do? He gives promises. He fulfills promises to give us hope in the next promise. But now we're gonna see something amazing take place here between God and man. Abram asking, would you please show me? Give me confidence in the promise. An interesting thing here, Abram had nothing other than a God-given right, a God-given promise. He didn't have a title and deed to any of this property, this land that God had promised him. 
You know, Abram rolls in. He's like, hey, that's mine. Well, who says? Where's the documentation? Well, God told me, right? I mean, that's the reality. That's all he had right here. So he's asking the question, what, what, how do I know? How can I be confident? How can I represent the promise? And we do the same thing with God, though. We ask, God, show me. How can I be confident? Please help me be confident in the promise. And for us, we don't really have excuses because we have Jesus, right? <laughs> but when we are faithless, he is faithful. We continue on to verse nine here, and we see this amazing change of events here. So he said to him, this is God saying to Abram, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old male, a female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. This seems like a weird ritual. God, like, we're talking about, like, Lord, give me a sign. Please show me. Reveal yourself to me. I mean, this is where Abram's at. Give me a sign of the promise. Give me confidence in the promise. Okay, go get a heifer, turtle dove, get, you know, and get, collect this, these animals. Now, for us, we're like, this doesn't make any sense. But Abram understood what was going on here. In that day and in that culture, this type of preparation would be made for a covenant between two parties. This was a practice. So for us, we're like, this is weird. But if Abram was reading about us, we'd be like, yeah, we, do, we put up papers like pages and pages and pages and pages worth of papers that nobody understands what anything means. We give it to a lawyer who's supposed to understand what it means. They don't actually read it. And then they come back to you and say, yes, yeah, sign here, 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 all these places. And then you own a house or whatever, right? I mean, this is, that seems crazy too, if you think about it. But now here's this, this interaction, and Abram understands this is the culture. Type, this is the preparation between two parties. This is what they would do. In a sense, what's happening here is there's a contract being drawn up between God and Abram. And God tells Abram, go prepare the contract. That's what he's telling him to do in collecting these animals. This was a regular part of the custom, a sacrificial cutting of the animals with the carcasses being split in two and both parties involved, this is the practice, both parties involved would walk through together, they would walk between these opposite each other, these two parts of the animals, blood all over the place, obviously, they would walk through and they would then go on pronouncing the terms of the agreement. This was the culture. This is what would take place. And so, it's interesting even in the midst of all of this, the bodies being broken and the blood that was shed. It was sealed with blood. God goes through great lengths to address Abram's doubt. And of course, we know that this is pointing us to the new covenant. God's preparing, God's told Abram to prepare this covenant. This is the practice of a blood covenant. And God's telling Abram to prepare the covenant. God, in this, we are pointed to Christ. We are pointed to the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. And the veil that was torn in two so that we could walk through. We could walk between. Verse 11. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. These vultures came, the birds in, in scripture oftentimes symbolize the powers of evil who would come and, and prey on the souls of men, right? We see that in different times of scripture and 
And so in reality, Abram is, again, there's this type of fighting off the enemy and keeping them away from the blood covenant. And this deep sleep then falls on Abram and horror and darkness come upon him. Another picture of the crucifixion. Darkness that came over the earth as the veil was torn and God made a new covenant, a new blood covenant with man through the blood of Jesus Christ. Then verse 13, he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What we see here is now Abram falls into a deep sleep and in the midst of his deep sleep, he's having visions, dreaming a dream of some sort. That's what's taking place. And in that there's horror and there's darkness and there's a promise. This is what I was talking about in the beginning. Sometimes the promises of God are even suffering. And what we can conclude, because we know the scriptures, this points us to the book of Exodus and the 400 years of slavery in Egypt. That's what God is telling Abram about. That's what God is preparing Abram for. 400 years, your descendants, now remember, God has given him a promise. You will have many descendants. And you're going to be blessed, and you're going to have much land, and you're, just, you're going to be a blessed man, and I'm going to bless you, and you, all this is going to be great, but for 400 years, your descendants are going to suffer in slavery at the hand of the Egyptians. Now, would that motivate you to have children? Somebody said to you, hey, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to have many descendants, but they're going to suffer for 400 years. In reality, we would try to find a loophole in this promise, in this plan, because of the horror and the darkness that's involved. But ultimately, we know they would see victory in the promised land. It's not without 400 years of trouble. Why? Because it's a promise, because God said it's going to happen. It's an absolute and sometimes we try to force the hand of God and think, well, maybe, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it this way instead. And Abram will do that at times, we know. But God's promise, God's plan will be fulfilled. Abram still trusts the promise, though. Even though he's told that for 400 years his descendants are going to suffer in slavery, he doesn't say, that's it, I'm not having any kids. He still pursues the promise because God had just shown him. He told him to look up, look to the heavens. And Abram entered into this great faith at that moment. So in that great faith, when God says, Abram, your descendants are going to suffer, he doesn't throw in the towel. Now he's also sleeping right now. He's having a dream. He's having visions right now. But we know he doesn't come out of it and just think, that's it, I'm not doing it. He pursues the promise of God. He does what he can to prepare himself. And, and let that be a, a, a word for us. If, the, if God has given us a word, a promise, what are we doing to pursue it or to prepare ourselves for it? You know, even in the midst of time when I, I knew God had called me to come back here and eventually I would be taking over the church, I, was, I wasn't trying to take over the church. I was trying to grow and prepare and, and learn and how can I be more prepared for what God has called me to. 
But Abram still trusts the promise after the vision of horror and darkness. And we may have fear. Guys, listen, I'll be honest. I think I've said over the last couple years at some point, man, I'm just, I'm afraid for my kids growing up in this world today. I'm afraid for my grandkids beyond that. And maybe, you, you're, maybe you're a married couple, you're not having kids, you're like, we're not having kids because of fear. Maybe you're not pressing into a promise that God has laid before you because of fear. But this whole thing started with verse two, or verse one, God said to Abram, do not be afraid. That's the word from the Lord. Do not be afraid. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. I'm your protector. I'm your comforter. I'm your strength. And I'm your exceedingly great reward. Don't be afraid of the circumstances of this world. And don't hold back from pursuing the promise that God has put in front of you because of the circumstances of the world. Verse 17 And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. It came to pass. We see here in these, these final verses that God made a covenant with Abram. Abram, remember, he's still asleep. He's still seeing a vision here. God is revealing to him. And God reveals himself here in a similar way that he does after that slavery in Egypt that God foretold Abram about. A smoking oven, much like the pillar of cloud by day, to guide the Israelites in the desert. And the burning torch much like the pillar of fire by night, as God led the people out of slavery because it was him who made the covenant. You notice that in verse 18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The Lord made a covenant with Abram. Abram didn't make a covenant with the Lord. This was prepared like any other covenant would be prepared but Abram didn't make the covenant. God made the covenant. That's it. This wasn't a two-way agreement. This wasn't a deliberation back and forth of give and take of any sort and, well, I'll sign on these terms or I'll sign on these terms. No, God made the covenant. God told Abram what was going to happen. It's a promise that is solely dependent on God. A covenant that is solely dependent on God because God can make a covenant. Man can't make a covenant because we will break it. And God didn't even put that responsibility on Abram. God did the work. He made the covenant. Man fails, therefore God does not require Abram to make the covenant. And then, of course, we fast forward. God makes a new covenant through Jesus Christ. His body that was broken and his blood that was shed. Let this give us a greater appreciation the next time we partake in communion remembering the blood covenant 
and the, and the, the, the sacrificial blood covenant that would take place and the bodies that would be literally broken, split in two, and the blood that would be poured out and the walking between, the walking through and coming to these terms of an agreement and pronouncing the terms of an agreement, it didn't happen. The Lord walked through and he pronounced the terms of the agreement. And the terms of the agreement was to your descendants I have given this land all of it. All of what he's already told him, he's now showing him from the river, great river of Egypt, the Nile River, to the river Euphrates, everything in between, that's the promised land. It's all yours, your, your descendants are going to possess this land. It's gonna take suffering. It's gonna take some time. It's gonna take faith. But your descendants will possess that land. Guys, we have a new covenant. And it took suffering the suffering of Jesus. It takes time as we are being transformed and we walk through this life, walking by faith and not by sight, but we will inherit the promise of eternal life through relationship with Jesus Christ. His body was broken, his blood was shed. We need simply to accept the covenant, by faith. It all comes back to that, grace through faith. Grace is a one-sided covenant where God does all the work. Guys, this was a divine covenant. And I end with this quote by Alexander McLaren. It says this, a divine covenant is not a mutual agreement on equal terms between two parties, but a divine promise assured. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your blood. We thank you that through this blood covenant, we can see Jesus. We can be reminded of the promise of eternal life through relationship, through faith. Not of ourselves, not of works, but by the blood of Jesus. We are saved by grace. We look to you we thank you for that sacrifice. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures that just constantly point us back to relationship with you and walking by faith. Give us vision to see, God. Let us see beyond our finite minds and see how great you are. We, we love you and we glorify you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.